Welcome to this episode of the Million Dollar Mastermind, where we get real world insights on winning from people who have accomplished amazing things. I'm your host, Larry Wydell, and let's get going. I'm here talking with Clint Greenleaf. Hello, Clint. Hey, Larry. How you doing, buddy? Good to see you. Good. And you're in uh, Austin, Texas. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's only going to be 100 today. Nice and cool. Oh, that's... That, that's where you go where you want cool weather in the uh, spring and summer in any place in Texas. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, congratulations on the success of all your Greenleaf companies. I guess, did it start with the publishing? It did. Yes. That was the first one that I launched, uh, started Greenleaf Book Group in 97 and then sold that in 2011. Oh, you did? Yep. Now, how how much success did you have uh, uh, with the publishing? You know, I know, I think you have, uh, what, 30 New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestsellers. Uh, we did, no yeah. We, how, how did that, how did you start? You're not one of the, you know, you're not in the publishing capital of the world down there in Austin, which is, you're not New York City. And you started a publishing company and you did it big. So talk about that. Sure. So uh, I had been a Marine in college uh, and got hurt my junior year. Uh, couldn't get commissioned because my shoulder was busted up. So I took the obvious next choice and went into accounting. Um, I hated pretty much every second of it, but I figured I'd apply to the big six firms. At the time, there were only uh, six of them. And my friends all kind of laughed because they were like, you're not very bright. Uh, you don't really go to class very much. You, you trade stocks on the internet, whatever that is. This is the mid nineties. And they said, uh, you're not going to get an offer. You know, we have 4.0s and we got one offer from the big six. You have maybe a 3.0. There's no way you're going to get a job offer from a big six firm. Yeah. And I went to the interviews and I got six offers and they all laughed and said, what did you possibly do? And I said, everything the Marines taught me to do. I tied my tie properly. I shined my shoes. I looked presentable and it's kind of fun. And so after a, a few drinks back and forth, they may or may not have goaded me into writing a book about how to dress properly. Uh, and it was a garbage little booklet. It was a piece of a, a paper folded over. Uh, it was 28 pages, hand-drawn illustrations with a Sharpie called Attention to Detail. Uh, and we sold it through the mail. Uh, and I went to go work at Deloitte. And I lasted there for seven long, very excruciating months uh, before I retired at 22 to take the book that had started to sell well uh, into an actual publishing company and launched Greenleaf Book Group in 97. A 28-page booklet with hand-drawn illustrations on how to dress for an interview. I'll show you something. I got, I got a copy here. <laughs> this is, I, look, I'm not proud of this because anybody who, to all my early customers, I, I am so thankful that they did this, but this is the quality of hand-drawn illustrations in this thing. I don't know, um, not bad, not bad. Well, it's not, not good either. For those of you that are listening on audio, this is not a, a uh, wonderful piece, but I sold 10,000 of them through the mail um, and it beat accounting. So I had passed the CPA exam after what, a few months. What did you charge for it? What did you charge? Five bucks, five, five bucks in the mail. And yeah. you advertised it where? Bottom line, personal, gave me a small little, uh, classified ad space it was about three lines and said if you want your so what i didn't realize at the time was they marketed the book for grandparents who were buying it for their grandsons right like, ah, okay i love my grandson but he dresses like in this grunge 
like a slob in this grunge model, right? So it was five bucks. And the first day in the PO box, I had uh, two checks for five bucks each. The next day, seven, next day, 13. And about a month into it, I was pulling 50 to 100 checks a day for five bucks a piece out of the PO really? box. Huh. That's, so, that's pretty impressive. It was know? fun. I, I didn't know anything about books, really. I mean, I, I know how to read, but I wouldn't say I was a lover of reading. Uh, and, and that was what launched this. The, the premise that was really... Greenleaf Book Group was a company that I, I put out there because there was no way to get into bookstores in the mid 90s if you weren't published by a major house. Right. And I wanted to change that. So 15 years into it, we built up a system that allowed a relative unknown author to be able to produce a book and then get it into bookstores without having a random house contract. Yeah. Um, so we sold and that in 2011 and I left in 2014. Well, that can be a roller coaster business. Can it? I mean, it's like, what's your next hit? Like, if you have a hit, it's like, uh, where do you get the next one? Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I made so many mistakes along the way. I like how you fast forwarded to the end where it actually worked out for me. Yeah. But there were so many mistakes along the way early on. You know, first of all, I, I didn't know much about how to manage people. And I went through a lot of um, a lot of mistakes and trials with that uh, over now, time. Was, was that because... Uh, you carried over your Marine uh, training, <laughs> like a drill, you used your drill sergeant as your model or something like that. <laughs> I, I definitely paid drill instructor more than I should have, uh, you know, it, telling people that the beatings will continue until morale improves doesn't really work as far as a strategy. Um, but also too, I mean, you know, I, I didn't really know what the model was, right? So early on, I thought if we were helping people publish books, I was playing a numbers game. So right. I thought I was collecting lottery tickets and each book that we brought on would be a better shot for me at having eventually a big enough shot of having book sales. And what I learned over time, and actually there was a, a great woman named Marcella Smith at Barnes and Noble, um, who kind of destroyed our business model in one call, but the next day, what we did next was kind of what fixed it, right? So she came to us in, in early 2004 and said, stop sending me books. Barnes and Noble will not carry any of your books. Everything you publish is garbage and you're wasting my time. I throw it all in the trash, which is really hurtful to hear because clients were asking us to help them get into bookstores. Um, and what we realized was it wasn't about the quantity of books we brought in. It was about the quality of books. So we had about 600 titles at the time. We had to cull our list by about 90%, uh, removed a lot of the books that weren't selling well. We added a bunch of standards and started really charging people to create great books instead of just saying, sure, throw anything out there. We'll see what happens. And we built an empire based on having incredibly great books that were beautiful, that were well-written, that had sales potential, that had markets that were easily addressable. And it gave us a better model on how to help our clients do better books. Why did she, uh, I mean, she seems like she singled you out for abuse there. You know, she might have. I, I, we became friends later on, and she's awesome, and she's a great person. I think she just got tired of seeing trash come across her desk, and she it, it filled up her trash can. And every time we sent her a book, she just got tired of it. So she was trying to help herself not be bothered by garbagey books, as she saw it. Um, and over time, it became a really neat idea for us to be able to, to use that as kind of a rallying cry to improve the quality of what we did, because she said, you'll never get through. And I said, well, let's assume for a second that you're wrong. What would it take for me to prove you wrong? 
And she laughed and said, you never will because you have to say no to 90% of stuff and you have to get rid of the garbage books and you have to hire great designers and you have to go out and do all these different things. And I said, cool, let's say I do all those things. How long am I going to be in jail in this world? And she said, I don't know, probably a year or so. Six months into it, she let us back in the door, which was great. So. And uh, what were the, I got several things jump in my mind. It, you got the job, the job offers without the 4.0 uh, grade. Oh, at Deloitte. Yeah. yeah. At, at the big six firms. At a big six firm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how did that happen other than you, you know, you, you were dressed for success? Well, really, that's pretty much all it was. I mean, I guess I was intelligently spoken, so I, I could say yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and not act like a jerk. Um, but at the time, grunge culture was a big, big deal. And if you remember to the good old days of the 90s, you had kids wearing flannel, slouching in their chairs, kind of being lazy and not really looking the part because they were too cool for school. They were internet savvy kids who thought they could bring technology wisdom to a job. And what you learn pretty quickly is an accountant a staff accountant at 22 years old getting the first job out of school is not there for anything other than really to expel carbon dioxide and absorb oxygen. So they want to be able to have you in the room and not look like an idiot when the, the CFO walks into the room. Um, your job is to shut up and listen and be respectful. So if you look like you're slouching, if you look like you're too good for school, if you're not willing to pay attention and engage with people, it doesn't work. And I think I was just intelligent enough that I could you know, fog a mirror uh, and they let me in for that. But the fact that I was presentable, that really mattered back in those days. Well, you know, you know, we could spend a second talking about the fact that what causes people to do well coming out of school, really in any job environment is, can people get, you know, can they stand you? And, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Are you somebody that they would like in there? Because, you know, when you come into an office, you bring a presence, you know, there's a, everybody's got a vibe. Everybody's got an attitude. And uh, we, you know, I, we just recently in the last couple of years had to uh, make a change in our senior staff because we had somebody we tried for two years to accommodate because they were so good. They were like a robot, you know, like the perfect robot. But they were just miserable. I don't know, personal life, what it was. But I mean, we tried this, got a staff, got a pay raise, gave it titles, you know, changed this, changed that, and gave them more responsibility, let up, you know, all those kind of things, still miserable. And I said, finally, we said, you know, uh, fantastic, you know, the strangest thing, experience, phone call of my life, but uh, you're great, you got to go because you're miserable. And you bring that misery and it just, you know, we breathe the air, you know, it's, it pollutes the staff, you know, yep. and it's uh, the hardest thing to do, right? Because, you know, a bad performer who's toxic is super easy, right? You kick yeah. them out. They're terrible. No right. trouble whatsoever. Yeah. The hard ones are the ones who are either incredibly awesome human beings and can't perform and they have to go or the people who are incredibly great performers, but are total jerks. And the problem is if you don't have both, you can't make it work, right? So I'll right. tell you, I remember I stayed at Deloitte for seven months. Um, I passed the CPA exam and retired. I'm not saying they would have kept me for an eighth month, but luckily it was my choice to step down. I, I think at a certain point, I'm not sure I was cut out to be a CPA. Um, there's a lot of accountants who look at me and say, he's not one of us. I'm not sure that guy really fits. 
but it, it, yeah, you have to have both sides of it. And so the toughest fires I've ever had have been that moment where you're like, wow, this salesperson's amazing, but everyone in operations hates them. And I'm either going to sacrifice my credibility as a leader and the morale in the office for someone who can sell, uh, or I'm going to uh, have to let them go and figure out a better sales option. Or give them another, let, get another office on the other side of town with their own, own secretary. Yeah. Hey, hey maybe COVID's good for that. Isolate them. Yeah. 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 Just <laughs> put them in quarantine in their house. Yeah. Uh, the, th the thing is also about uh, uh, the grade issue is that one of the greatest gifts I had in my life, Clint, was when I went to Georgia Tech, uh, I met two, first week, I met two graduating fifth year seniors, which should have told you something, but uh, <laughs> Uh, they both told me separately, let me tell you a secret. They said, uh, don't worry about your grades. I said, you, and I said, what? You know, because I'm naive coming out of grades or everything. You worship at the altar of grades. And they said, look, I said, what about when you try and get your job? You go home for the job interview. And they said, they both said this. They said, nobody's ever going to ask you what your grade point average is. And unless you're going to be a research scientist and you're too dumb for that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not an issue. Yeah. That, no risk factors. Uh, yeah. There. No risk factors. So they said, you know, that's not what they're looking for. Yeah. And, you know, I had, so I said, you know, to both of them, I said, thank, thank you very much. The most valuable gift I've, I've received in my life. So uh, when I, also that was reinforced because I would, no graduating seniors who would go through the job uh, offer process, you know, engineering uh, jobs from out of Georgia Tech and find, talk to them later. And they, you know, the, the ones who had the 4.0 and they said, you know, I killed myself to get a 4.0 and I get the great job. I go in and I got a job that a actual adult monkey could learn how to do. <laughs> with a week of training or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember I, I did an internship at the Cleveland Clinic. I grew up in Cleveland, uh, Ohio, and I did an internship there. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I met a guy who probably was not uh, the Chamber of Commerce member of, of the medical staff. But he said something about, why do you want to be a doctor? And I said, oh, I think it'd be nice to help people. And he looked at me square in the eyes and did everything short of grab my collar and you know yell at me. But he said, if you want to remember your 20s, do not become a doctor. And he looked like death warmed over because he'd been up for three or four days in a row. And I remember thinking like, hmm, you know, I'm only 14 right now or 15 right now, but that seems like an important time in my life. 20s are probably pretty good for me. So I'm going to go ahead and heed this advice. Um, and uh, in 96, when I got hurt, I remember the, the Navy captain who was talking to me said, look, you can't be a Marine, your shoulders busted up. You can go in the Navy if you want to, but the military is obsolete. We're never going to fight a war again. It's 1996. Um, and I remember thinking like, well, heck, you know, I can go be a civilian and that, that beats being in the Navy, like any good Marine, obviously. Um, so it was an easy choice for me to, to jump into civilian life then too. But um, I, I will tell you that I did not suffer from the need to get a 4.0 at any point in my college career. Well, do Nor could I have if I wanted to, by the way, right. Well, you know, if you could have stuck it out at Deloitte for a little longer, you know, you might have found yourself 
to be perfect partner material because those suckers never work. They just go schmooze for new clients. You know what I'm saying? And so their sale, they graduate to salesmen selling their firm to the, the new, you know, so they're in the golf course, they're in the lunches. And that was the sales pitch, by the way. Yeah. Spend 12 years of your life working oh. your off to become a partner. And I thought, I don't want to wait that long. Like if I retire now, I'm 22, I'll be a CEO today, right? So I'm going to do that and start right now. Uh, and I got to jump into sales immediately. Yeah. And, the, and if you're working with one of the big six firms or any CPA firm, just be aware of the fact that the CPA that you met when you started the relationship is never going to be looking at your stuff, except maybe uh, at the final end or something like that. But they spend so little time on that, that they're not the ones who are going to notice that, hey, we need to find this extra strategy. And uh, it's going to be the junior uh, people who are doing the bookkeeping and accounting. And every one of them despise doing it because it, <laughs> If all they wanted to do is be a book, do the bookkeeping, they would have just avoided the CPA uh, uh, gauntlet uh, and, and, and test and all that and just gone to become a bookkeeper. You know? That's right. That's right. So just as long as you're aware of that, uh, folks, <laughs> yeah. you know, to watch out for yourself, uh, but you got to have, a, you know, you got to have a good bookkeeper and CPA. Uh, to survive and just be aware of the realities of this thing. I mean, I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, learning that lesson, you know, but uh, trusting them, you know, and uh, when you go, uh, when you, when you got out on your own, what do you think, what was your vision of your publishing company? <laughs> yeah. What, what were you start? What kind of idea did you start with? Did you have a role model? I had a lot of great role models. I knew what I wanted to eventually become, but my my goals when I got started were to be able to earn enough money that I could go out on a lot of dates. That was pretty much it. My first <laughs> office was above my parents' garage, um, and. I was trying to sell books as fast as possible just to try and make enough money that I could actually afford to, to go out and, and meet lots of neat people. Uh, that was fun. Uh, that, that changed for me a little bit after I met my wife, uh, kind of changed a lot of the, the business policies and practices. But early on, I wanted to build something that would be able to withstand uh, the economy that may or may not change, um, that was actually going to do good for people. And I don't think I started with this goal, but eventually we got there, which was that I wanted to build something for my team so that I could help them and, and really build a staff. Because in the end, I realize it's late in the game, but the real joy that I got from starting and building a business and eventually selling it was the joy that I brought to everyone else there. Um, and not that every day was joyful, but generally speaking, being able to provide someone a, a means of earning income and being able to put their kids through college and being able to pay for their house that made me feel really good. And that was really kind of the ultimate goal for me. Yeah. And also being able to help people get published and get their message out on in the world uh, and being a part of that. And right. Specifically about that business. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Being yeah. able to share ideas for sure. That was a big part of share it. Share ideas. Yeah, absolutely. 
That wraps up this episode. Consider leaving a rating and review if you like what you heard. In addition, I have a free video for you and it contains my best insights from 20 years of running my own business and also coaching million dollar earners. You'll find it at whiteellonwinning.com forward slash webinar. Thanks for listening and do it big.